Hey, small town fam. This is Paul Holes. Make sure you subscribe to The Briefing Room with Detectives Dan and Dave. Season two is out now. Subscribe now and thanks. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. I've always been a great believer in luck. If you're going to be a detective, you need luck. You need a break. You have to work hard and you kind of make your own luck a lot of the time. And once you get that break, you've really got to work it because it's going to run out eventually. When a serious crime is committed in a small town, a handful of detectives are charged with solving the case. I'm Yardley, and I'm fascinated by these stories. So I invited my friends, Detectives Dan and Dave, to help me gather the best true crime cases from around the country and have the men and women who investigated them tell us how it happened. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins from small town USA. Dave investigated sex crimes and crimes against children. He's now a patrol sergeant at his police department. Dan investigated violent crimes. He's now retired. Together, we have more than two decades' experience and have worked hundreds of cases. We've altered names, places, relationships, and certain details in these cases to maintain the privacy of the victims and their families. So we ask you to join us in protecting their true identities, as well as the locations of these crimes, out of respect for everyone involved. Thank you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dale. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. Great to see you. <laughs> you sound unconvinced. <sighs> These are always awkward. <laughs> Still, after all this time. And we have Detective Dave. I am here next to twin brother Dan. Yes, you are. Where it all began. This is where it all began. Yes. And small town fam, this is another incredible day here in season eight of this podcast because we have left the United States once again to meet up with a new guest to the podcast, retired detective chief superintendent Roddy, who hangs his hat in Scotland. Roddy, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Hi, how are you doing? It's really good to be here. I couldn't be more excited, actually. I think your excitement, I'm going to trump it because uh, 
I'm still very excited about actually being able to see people in America over my internet. That's how old I am. I still think it's a magic box. So, yeah, <laughs> really looking forward to it. We are too. And I'm just going to give my usual pandemic disclaimer here and say that since we're all recording from our homes, you might hear garbage trucks, lawnmowers, pets, you know, life. I'm a little upset too because I kind of wanted to go to Scotland. Ditto. <laughs> well, my wife said when she saw the kit that you sent me, goodness me, would it not have been cheaper just to take the two of us over to America? <laughs> <laughs> I love your wife. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, Roddy, we love to get the lay of the land from our guests whenever we can. Would you tell us a little bit about your jurisdiction? Sure. Um, there's been a lot of changes in Scotland recently. We now have a national police force, but at the time I'm talking about, I was the DCI, which is the Detective Chief Inspector in Perth. You know, we call it a city. It doesn't really qualify, but it's about 47,000 people and it sits in Perth and Kinross, which is the county area around it. And in total, we've got about 150,000 people. And at that time, I would be in charge of 30 detectives, 35, something like that. And we would be responsible for all crime, reported crime, what we call public protection, so child abuse and domestic abuse. So we would be expected to pretty much deal with everything that happened on our patch, but we could call in support if we needed it from Dundee, which is a city of about 150,000 people 22 miles away. What's a typical type of crime that your officers are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis? Drugs, theft, property crimes, stuff like that? Yeah, all the same. People are the same everywhere. And Perth's a lovely city. We're going to talk about murders that happened there, but they are relatively unusual Sometimes we go a year and not have a single murder in Perth and Kinross. Unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, when I was the DCI there, I was dubbed with the title of DCI Death because of the number that we had in a very short space of time. You don't want bad things to happen to people, but when they do, you want to be tested, you want to be challenged by the circumstances and by the investigation and put into practice your team and that which you've learned from all your other experiences. And this investigation I'm going to talk about certainly tested us. Great. Please tell us how this case came to you. Okay, well, it started off as a missing person case. Stuart went missing in 1999, and it's a cold case. Stuart, when he went missing, was about 31 in 1999, I was just moving from being a detective sergeant in Perth to be promoted to detective inspector in Dundee. And I became aware of a missing person picture. And at that time, we didn't investigate missing people particularly well. It would get past a detective who would sit with it on his desk and potentially not do all that much with it. But uh, this fella, Stuart's photograph, was on the wall missing. And I particularly remember it because there was another two men who looked quite similar to him, were also missing at the same time, and they had become long-term. And one of the things that flashed through my head as I was leaving was, I wonder if we've got some kind of serial killer out there targeting bald males in their 30s. But I didn't give Stuart much thought after that. And um, in about 2006... So roughly seven years after Stuart goes missing. That's right. Okay. I came back to Perth and I was a chief inspector and I was called on by my chief superintendent and he said, this woman has been on the phone and she's been extremely rude to my personal assistant. Get on to her and sort it out. <laughs> so I phoned this lady who I'm going to call Mrs. T. I discovered that Mrs. T was a repeat complainer about the police 
every contact she had with the police resulted in a complaint and she was extremely rude person. So anyway, I got to know Mrs T and we got to the point where I said, you can't speak to anybody else at Perth Police Station other than me. And please stop harassing my officers. So we came to an agreement that all her interactions with me would last no more than 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> she was quite comfortable with that and I was comfortable with that. So I got to know her and she was a really interesting person. She was a spiritualist, member of the spiritualist church. She had visions, she had dreams, she had all sorts of senses which she was keen to share with me about a whole range of different things that had happened throughout the history of crime and policing in Scotland. And gradually we started to develop this relationship and she started to tell me the story of why she disliked the police so intensely. Her son, Stuart, had gone missing in 1999 and the police had not done enough about it and she said he had been murdered and the police weren't interested. Is this the same Stuart whose photo had been on the police department wall? Yes. Was that the main complaint or were there other complaints that made her this repeat caller to your agency? Oh, lots of complaints about everything, really. I'd say she was a is still alive, is still going strong. She just, if something was bothering her, if she didn't like what she was saying, she would complain. And uh, Dan and Dave, I'm sure, will be very familiar with the kind of person I'm talking about. One of the dangers of this is that when you get somebody who complains persistently and at times what appears to folk to be irrationally, that then people assume that everything they say is wrong. Of course. It's like you cry wolf, right? Yes, well, I think one of the key lessons of this kind of case is that just because somebody's annoying doesn't make them wrong. So I said to her, I said, look, well, Mrs. T, I will review Stuart's case. I'll have a proper look at it, I promise. So I got Stuart's case file. I saw that it had been reviewed many times by good detectives, quality people who I respected. It was just in the run-up to Christmas, around about that time, so I got out of the file, dumped it on my desk, and was ready to review it in the new year. Over the Christmas period, I got a call from a detective sergeant who I knew well, who had been my partner at one time when I'd been a detective, completely respected his judgment. He says, we've had a woman come into the office, and she says that her husband murdered Stuart. I says, that's remarkable, because the file's lying on my desk. So I've always been a great believer in luck. If you're going to be a detective, you need luck. You need a break. You have to work hard and you kind of make your own luck a lot of the time. And once you get that break, you've really got to work it because it's going to run out eventually. So Bruce was this lady's husband and they were having some real marital problems. And during a make or break holiday, he had got drunk and she had been appealing to him and he said, well... Why would you want to be with me anyway after what I did to Stuart? Wow. And Bruce, who we had never heard of, but we started to look at the case file and it turned out that Bruce was a friend of Stuart's. They had been really close and probably Bruce had been the last person to see Stuart alive, according to the case file. So we started to interview Bruce's wife and she started telling us stories about 
what Bruce had been involved in, that he and Stuart back in the early 90s had been involved in breaking into isolated workshops and houses and stealing fireplaces, stealing old doors, that kind of stuff, stealing tools. So they had been pretty active thieves. So we went back into the files and looked for all these crimes and, and there was a lot of that kind of thing going on at the time. So, you know, that gave her a bit of credibility that that kind of thing was going on. And uh, we started to effectively construct a crime series investigation for crimes that had happened nearly 10 years ago. And then she told us about a car that Bruce had stolen as part of an insurance swindle. Bruce had stolen this car for an associate and had set fire to it. And then she said he was also involved in a shooting. Some years before, there had been a big investigation because somebody on a motorcycle had pulled up outside a businessman's house and discharged two shotgun cartridges in the roof of the house. We'd never got to the bottom of it. There was all sorts of theories at the time, but nothing else. She said, well, that was him. That was Bruce that did that as well. So no evidence really about Stuart's murder, but other evidence. And we developed an investigative strategy that said we're going to start from the minor crimes and used that to try and piece together what we knew about Bruce, about his activities, about his behaviour over the years, and to hopefully then build through into the murder of Stuart. One of the things that we had to prove, of course, was that Stuart was dead. We had no body, we had no witnesses. He had just vanished and been missing for a long time. About seven years. So, fortunately, there was some precedent. There had been one under murder in Scotland where there was no body. It was about 100 miles north of us where a man had murdered his wife and the body had been dissolved and they'd never recovered the body. And so we chatted to them. We found out how to do it and put a huge team of people on to try and prove the negative that Stuart had ceased to exist. One of the really interesting things about Bruce was I live in a little village just north of Perth, about eight miles north of Perth, and Bruce lived in the same village as me. Perth's one of these places that um, people don't move much out of Perth, and when people do go out, they tend to come back. You know, the relationships, the families, the businesses, all these networks all continue to exist. You could easily recreate where we were seven years ago. So that was what we started to do and to map all these relationships. Bruce is very friendly with my next door neighbour and he was part of a group of tradesmen who all worked together and he was known for his skills as a drainage contractor and was also known as the best digger in the business, which became very relevant later on. Uh, <laughs> so Bruce was well-respected within that community. He was also a doorman, so he worked the pubs at night and he was quite well known by the police who would be working on the pubs and the, the nightclubs and stuff because he was really anti-drugs and he would report drug dealing and he would give evidence about that and he was seen as a real asset to the local cops. Also fitness fanatic, very fit guy, but with a bad temper. So we started to look at the car that Bruce had stolen and we had some photographs of the recovered car, but the car had long gone. Well, we got some intelligence that Bruce, rather than burn the whole car, thought it was a bit of a waste, and he'd taken the quite valuable wheels and tyres off it before he burnt it, and had sold them to a local taxi driver. 
And that was our first significant break. We went and remarkably recovered the wheels and tyres and got statements from the taxi driver and we were pretty convinced that we had enough evidence to get Bruce for the theft of the car and what we would call a fraudulent scheme to defraud the insurance company. So we started to work our way towards our main goal, the disappearance of Stuart. So we started to look at the shooting. This shooting is the one where he fired through the roof of the building, is that it? That's correct. For Perth, that's pretty extreme. You know, we don't do that in Perth. We don't have gun crime, really. We'd have maybe a couple of gun crime incidents a year, but they were usually pretty easy to sort out because it usually meant that some of our locals had got involved with some of the drug gangs from Glasgow or Edinburgh. But, you know, it's not the kind of thing that happens in Perth. We call that a Tuesday morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Tuesday here in L.A. <laughs> yeah, we're a sleepy wee town. And, of course, we don't have guns. We don't have them. Gun crime's really unusual. So it had been a big investigation. And we had a bit of intelligence that Bruce at some point had access to a shotgun where a photograph of Bruce was found in one of his associates' house standing holding a shotgun. The text on it was something like, do you want to see the twins? So it's a double-barreled shotgun. You know, I'm not the sharpest tool in the box, but I thought that might be significant. <laughs> so what it tells you is that Bruce's inner circle, they know, or if they don't know, there's a tacit understanding about what he did. So we'd managed to gather a fair bit of information about the shooting. We knew that the businessman had a business association with Bruce. Bruce, as I'd said before, was a drainage contractor and a really good one. And we were aware that there had been an incident at the businessman's place of work where Bruce had been there and had caused a bit of a disturbance and they'd called the police because this businessman had failed to pay his bill. So Bruce wasn't getting paid for the job and Bruce has got a pretty firm line on moral issues like that and it created a bit of a scene. <laughs> the police were called, it was put down as a kind of business dispute and that was the end of the matter. So it had just had been recorded as an incident but we knew that the relationship was there and that created a link between that victim and Bruce. And then we have another little break which tells us that somebody saw Bruce up in the rafters or a tractor shed because it is the country, a tractor shed where apparently Bruce might have had something hidden. His father had vintage tractors, which he kept there, and somebody had come in and found Bruce up in the attic, rooting about in there. So we go and we search that, and we find some seed bags, you know, Hessian seed bags, and that's a little disappointing. So from this, that, and the next thing, we got a little bit of evidence. We discovered that the shotgun had been stolen from a farm about two miles from my house, across the fields. A few years before, Bruce's father had been on the farm, on a pheasant shoot, um, somebody had had a shotgun stolen. So Bruce's father had been on the farm where the gun was stolen from? Yes. Was his father also kind of in the criminal way of life? or Not at all. He's a lorry driver. He used to have a lorry which he kept there at this farm and he drove it. Perfectly law-abiding decent man, as far as we know. When you say he's a lorry driver, so in our country he's a truck driver? 
Yep, that's right. But what we were able to do was investigate that pheasant shoot and establish that Bruce had also been there that day. So the opportunity for the theft of the shotgun was there and not many other people would have the opportunity because it's in the middle of a farm. He's not entirely intelligent. No. I might venture a few more towns away before I start committing my crimes. It's too small of an area and people are going to start going, well, everyone knows it's Bruce. Yeah. Well, thank goodness for it. And again, when you're working in a small town, your client base tends to be relatively limited. You know who you're dealing with. So we had a really good knowledge of them. What we recognised that we didn't have a good knowledge of were people who just sat below the radar, who didn't impact on the things that we were generally interested in. They weren't involved in drug dealing. They weren't involved in serious organised crime. They were just involved in criminality generally. And when it was one of theirs that were involved in it, they just accepted they were involved in it, turned a blind eye, kind of gloried in it, enjoyed the talk, and it became just something that was common knowledge, but only in that group. You mean in the group of criminals themselves? They just knew, this is our crew, this is what we do, and we stay under the radar. Yeah, and they weren't an organised group in any manner means. They were organised in that they all knew each other, It was just an underlying level of criminality. And I'm not suggesting for a second that the rest of them were involved like Bruce was. But he became celebrated as being one that was prepared to push the boat out just that wee bit further. And if you need something done, get Bruce, he'll do it. If you need somebody to pay a bill, Bruce will go up and put the frighteners on them and get them to pay their bill. So that was the kind of guy he is. So completely invisible to policing because it tended to be within that little society So it was lots of people we didn't know. But then, of course, it transpired that there was lots of people we knew because we'd been at school with them or we knew them through playing football. You know, we didn't know that they were a bit dodgy. Or maybe we actually did know they were a bit dodgy, but they didn't really hurt anybody. So that also loosened their tongues significantly. So basically, given the small community and you all having history with so many people in town from school and sports and all that, it made those people more willing to talk to you. Exactly. Got it. Based on what you've described Bruce as, this shooting is more of a, hey man, you owe me money, I mean business, I'll bring a gun to this, I'm not fucking around with you. Exactly that. And Bruce would say he's got a really strong code of honour. He would never talk about anybody else. He would never grass. Is that grass like green grass? A grass, an informant. I don't know where it comes from, but it's to grass or to grass up. What a great phrase. So Bruce had a persona in which many of us would find some fairly admirable traits. It is sort of a selective code of honour, though. Oh, yeah, very much. Hi, You know, he's not a bad guy. I quite like him. But you don't cross him. What other people might say, well, I would do this, I would do that. He does it. (laughs) (laughs) Bruce means what he says. And if you don't pay his bill, something's happening. Look out. Exactly. So after a long investigation, about eight months to a year, we started to make plans to arrest Bruce. And we have really restricted powers around about that. And we consulted with what we call our procurator fiscal, who is the prosecutor. So equivalent in America would be the DA. So it would be exactly the same with district attorney. So we investigate on the behalf of the procurator fiscal. But 
the decision to charge is entirely down to the senior investigating officer, who would be me. So all Bruce's friends suggest Bruce will never speak. Bruce is a hard guy. He'll never speak to the police. There's no point getting him in, which, of course, you hear a lot. There's no point in getting him in. He never speaks. Or my other favourite, there's no point in searching his house. He never takes anything home. Both complete nonsense, of course. <laughs> but uh, there you go. Anyway, that's a couple of my favourite tropes. So we detained Bruce and brought him in, and he was interviewed first about the car. He sat with his arms folded and said, not a solitary word. So while we had Bruce in custody, we also started to detain his associates. So we're a big team in this. We would maybe upwards of 40, 50 detectives, a search team, dogs. We had a press strategy. We had a communication strategy. The whole shooting shebang. We understood exactly what we were going to do because we had made the not unreasonable assumption that Bruce wasn't going to speak to us. He wasn't going to tell us that he'd murdered Stuart. Our plan was that once we had to release Bruce, we would have a surveillance operation in place. We would use the press to dial up the pressure on mostly his associates rather than him. And once he's released, you're aware that the network is now going to reach out to each other and go, did you get brought in too? Yeah. You? Yeah. Hey, everybody got brought in. Well, what'd you tell them? Then they start kind of turning on each other and not trusting each other. And some of these guys who are maybe the weaker link in these networks will say, they're going to find out anyway. I'm going to get my deal before anybody else does. Exactly that. It's the same old stuff. No matter where you are, this is about people. And people cannot keep their big traps shut. <laughs> so we gathered bits and pieces that supported some of the statements that we already had from Bruce's associates, including the person whose car it was that had been burned. And um, we got to the point where we had enough evidence to charge Bruce and arrest him for stealing the car and the fraud. Because we'd got him arrested, we then had the rest of the weekend to interview him. And he was interviewed on the Saturday about the shooting. And by that time, Bruce had started to talk a bit about the shotgun because he knew he was done for it. And we appealed again to his code of honour and saying, you know, we don't want this thing lying about. We need to get back. So Bruce, after the shooting, he'd been on a stolen motorbike. He had ridden away, come up to his home village and had gone down a particular road because he knew there was a dip in the road to hide from the police. And it was the road to my house. I live in an old converted farm and it's on the end of a dirt road and there's a big dip where a pipe runs under the road and that was where the shotgun was, about 200 yards from my house. And it's wrapped in a seed bag. So the same Hessian bags that we recover from the attic are wrapping the shotgun. So the intelligence was that he was digging around in the rafters of the shed. Yeah, but pretty convinced that the shotgun was there at one point, but then, of course, he'd taken it out with him to shoot at the roof and then brought it out to my house to hide it. Did he know that you lived just a few hundred meters away? Possibly, yeah. I'm pretty sure he actually did some work in my house at one time with a digger around the back of my house. I'm pretty sure he did, uh, although we never discussed it. Because I dare say I was relatively well-known and people would say, you know, that's Roddy that stays here, he's a cop, you know, as people do. But I don't think it would have occurred to him when he was hiding the gun. Did you pay the bill on time? Yeah, yeah, I paid the bill on time. <laughs> always make a point of paying my bills on time because you never know, Bruce might be at the back someplace. <laughs> so we then moved on to the murder. 
and he went back to arms crossed, silence, not a word, wouldn't speak, nothing. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, Small Town fam. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? So as the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. It's the award-winning home security that we recommend. Hey, small town fam, Detective Dave here. Yardley's right. As a former police officer who's responded to hundreds of alarm calls, the benefits of Simply Safe cannot be understated. On Small Town Dicks, we often discuss home security and situational awareness. Simply Safe provides an easy and effective way for you to accomplish both. Simply Safe was just named Best Home Security System of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report and recognized for the best customer service in home security by Newsweek. And you, small town fam, can test out a Simply Safe system with absolutely no risk to you with Simply Safe's 60 day risk free trial. If you don't love your system, return it for a full refund. So protect your home today. Our listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Be sure to take advantage of the Small Town Fam discount at simplysafe.com slash smalltown. That's simplysafe.com slash smalltown. Do it. So Bruce is just silent. By this time, it's very late on the Sunday night. It's quite a long interview, but you could tell within the interview that he was starting to feel something. There's a change occurring. He was starting to listen. He was starting to hear what the investigators were saying. He was potentially starting to empathise a little with them and... I'm also a great believer in confession being good for the soul. He's been carrying this about for a long, long time, and um, it's a burden. So he asked for a break, for someone to eat, and the two detectives who were interviewing him went and brought him some tea, and um, they sat down, and whilst they were outside, he told them, I want to talk about They went straight back into the interview room, and they said, Bruce... You said to us when we were outside that you wanted to tell us something, you wanted to talk about it. And he just broke down and admitted that he and Stuart, in 1999, had been involved in crime and they had stolen some computers from a small warehouse. And 
Stuart had put pressure on Bruce to find a buyer for the computers. Bruce said he couldn't do that. He had found buyers for a lot of the tools they'd been stealing, but this was completely different. And I mean, at that time, he wouldn't know anybody that wanted a computer. <laughs> and um, Bruce said that Stuart had threatened Bruce's child. Stuart said, you know, you're a father, you've got to be careful. You've got a wife and a nice kid there. And according to Bruce, he lost it and he ended up fighting with Stuart in the back garden of the house in a village called Errol in a long, fertile valley, a lot of farmland. And according to Bruce, he found a metal bar and he beat Stuart to death with it in a rage. What Bruce tells us is he kills Stuart, he panics, as you might, and he gets the body, he puts it into the back of his car and he drives down to a secluded area about three miles from the village that he knows relatively well, and he buries him in a field near to an electricity pylon. And he set fire to the computers in a certain place, and he set fire to Stuart's motorcycle leathers, which are also missing. He starts to gather himself again, having broken down. We say, right, you're going to take us to where Stuart's buried? So Bruce says, yep. And it's getting dark by this time. We take him down near this village of Errol and he points out just inside a field gate beside an electricity pylon where he says, that's exactly where I buried him. They say, well, how did you know that was where you buried him? He says, because a few months ago I came along this road. I hadn't been along this road for many years. I came along and I thought, oh my God, that's where I buried Stuart. So he's absolutely positive. He's convinced that's where it is. So we're pretty pleased with this and the next day down we go with the full forensic tents and where this is it's huge I mean it's huge it's covered in roads it's covered in farmland that farmland is really heavy clay very productive very fertile tough digging we've got site managers we've got crime scene managers we've got forensic managers on site we've got all the right things there you know it's all been done properly so we start to dig and we dig, and we dig, and we dig. You know, after three days, we're saying, hmm, this isn't really looking terribly good because we've now created something that looks a bit like the Somme battlefield down there. <laughs> <laughs> we had dogs, we had cadaver dogs in, and we had these poor fellows with the cadaver dogs because it's right at the limits of their capability. You know, seven years is a long time after an internment to be able to recover with cadaver dogs. And these guys really did everything they could. Their hands were bleeding. They penetrate the ground with a spike, just hard clay ground to let the odour out. And that's what alerts the dogs. You know, this is brutal work and they're there for days and weeks. And then it's not there. So we started to then investigate some of the other things Bruce had said about the burning of the computers and burning Stuart's motorcycle leathers. And we started thinking, he's not telling us the truth. You know, he's felt the pressure he needed to admit he needed to get it off his chest, but there's some things he's still not telling us the truth about. So then that starts to cast a bit of doubt on the statement about this is where the body is. And then we need to start looking at the things he said and how to support them, because effectively what we have is pretty thin without the admission. It's pretty thin. This is why you can confess to murdering somebody. That confession means nothing if I can't corroborate it with outside evidence. Yeah, exactly that. 
you know, we had good evidence. He's the last person to see him alive. We have the account of what's happened. We've got a case, but, you know, I need the body. We dug for years looking for this body. Ah, really? Yeah. You know, I desperately want to get the body back, and not least of which for Mrs. T, who's stuck with us for all these years, so she can bury her son. We need to get the job done right for Mrs. T and for Stuart. Whether he was a petty criminal or not, he didn't deserve to have his brains beaten out in his back garden. The thing is just a tragedy all round. The number of lives that have been ruined by this case is huge. So in the meantime here, has Bruce been charged? Yeah, we charged him with murder and it's going through the process. And you know what? He feels a lot better. It's a weight off his shoulders and uh, he is remanded in custody. So he goes to prison just awaiting trial where he is a model prisoner. And it's clear from him that he's quite happy to help us. So he comes out to help us find the body and he takes us to exactly the same place and says it's definitely there. And does he seem frustrated that you guys aren't having any search results? Oh, yeah, he thinks we're idiots. <laughs> I'm telling you guys, it's right here. It's right here. How can you not be finding it? You, you know, you must be idiots. Give me the digger. I'll get on it. I'll find it for you. <laughs> you know, he's explaining how well, there'll be a dip. You know, there'll be a dip. Because he knows all about digging. Well, we kind of know that, Bruce. <laughs> and we said, how far down could he possibly dig? You know, so we're down six, eight feet. He said, no, not in this. You can't be any deeper. But in the actual place he points, we go down to an extraordinary depth. I would satisfy ourselves, definitely not there. We keep working at it and we start bringing experts because that's what we do when we're stuck. We bring in experts and we bring in an expert who their speciality is search. That's all they do. The real experts, they say, probably what the pylon is, that's an anchor point. He's probably got the wrong pylon. And we look across this area, and there's dozens of them. Oh, God. Stretching up and down and across all over the place. You can imagine it would be the same as any U-shaped valley with lots of little settlements in it that you would have. Look, all these pylons. So we start to profile the pylons. So, of course, you're not taking pylons in the middle of nowhere. They've got to be close to a field entrance. They've got to be close to a road. So we end up with half a dozen, eight pylons we dig some and we find some sheep bones, but nobody, nothing. And it goes on for years. An excellent guy, I'm going to give his name, his name was Alan Wilkie. He led the search team and he became known as Digger Wilkie. He spent so much time down there. But he did it without complaining and with huge commitment and enormous compassion for Mrs. T, who was very often to be found watching. And every time we failed, we came back and we developed a new strategy and we worked out potential reasons for why things could be where they were. And it suddenly struck me that this advice we got from the search people was based on finding arms dumps in Northern Ireland. So a lot of their search philosophy and their processes came from there. Like arms dumps that would have belonged to the IRA back in the 60s, 70s, 80s? Exactly. Right. But of course, when they were burying arms, they were burying them with a view to finding them again. They weren't some panicky guy in the middle of the night in the lashing rain as it was that night trying to bury his mate who's just murdered. Bruce never wants to come back to it. He's just trying to conceal his crime. He doesn't want to come back to it. So this whole concept of the anchor point is completely irrelevant to what we're talking about. 
And that's a massive lesson as well about experts, you know. Just because somebody's an expert doesn't make them right. You need to consider what's the question you're asking them. And we'd been asking them the wrong question. And when we went back and asked them the right question, the boy said, well, I don't know, it could be any place. Oh, my God. It must have been so frustrated. All right. Like, I don't ever want to find this body again. I'm not going to put it in a place where somebody else can. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So Bruce goes to court. He doesn't retract his statement. His code of honor, he says, yep, I did it. I killed Stuart. I deserve to be punished. He tells the story and he's convicted because the only real evidence we have, because we've no body, is his confession. And because he claims it was self-defense, he gets 10 years. He's already serving a sentence by this time for the shooting. So he gets 10 years, which is concurrent with the sentence that he's already serving. I know in the US, if you get another sentence, it goes end on end on end. It's consecutive, but quite often ours are concurrent, so they happen at the same time. We don't incarcerate for the length of time that you guys do. So I said to Alan Wilkie, one day, Alan, I'll be sitting wherever I'm sitting, and the phone will ring, and it'll come up, Alan Wilkie, and you'll say, boss, we've found him. And one day... Just before Bruce gets out, Alan Wilkie's name came up on my phone. And I was lying in bed. I was so ill. Alan Wilkie comes up. Boss, I found him. We finally find the body of Stuart. What a feeling. Hey, small town fam. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? So as the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. It's the award-winning home security that we recommend. Hey, small town fam, Detective Dave here. Yardley's right. As a former police officer who's responded to hundreds of alarm calls, the benefits of Simply Safe cannot be understated. On Small Town Dicks, we often discuss home security and situational awareness. Simply Safe provides an easy and effective way for you to accomplish both. Simply Safe was just named Best Home Security System of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report and recognized for the best customer service in home security by Newsweek. And you, Small Town Fam, can test out a Simply Safe system with absolutely no risk to you with. Simply Safe's 60-day risk-free trial. If you don't love your system, return it for a full refund. So protect your home today. Our listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Be sure to take advantage of the Small Town Fam discount at simplysafe.com slash smalltown. That's simplysafe.com slash smalltown. Do it. So we find Stuart hundreds of metres away from the pinpointed spot. How deep was Stuart down? Just three, four feet down. You know, what you would expect to be able to dig. But in the interim period, there's a lot of scrub trees had grown up. So the whole topography of the area had completely changed. And the condition of the body, I'm guessing he's severely decomposed. Are the injuries on the body consistent? Well, Effectively, we're talking about bones. The skull injuries are consistent with the 
weapon as described, which we never recovered. So this is like right at the end of Bruce's sentence for what he's done. Now they've discovered the body. I'm guessing you can't retry him if they've got new evidence on that body that is contrary to what he's already pled to. No, you couldn't because he's been convicted. If he'd been found not guilty, then if there's compelling new evidence, you can retry somebody, you know, in a sort of double jeopardy. You can retry somebody, but it has to be really compelling new evidence of somebody that's been found not guilty. So Bruce is out relatively soon after that and is released on license. Is that like parole? Yeah, just exactly like that. And he was always going to behave himself. And he got back into his business and he continues to run a very successful one-man business doing drainage here in Perth. Does he still do the petty crimes and things? Not so far as I'm aware, and um, I would be extraordinarily surprised if he did. And does Mrs. T ever come across Bruce? No. Uh, She has a less charitable view of him than I do. I imagine. I don't know. She would maybe dispute this. I don't get the impression that she hates him. I don't know why that is. It's odd. She hated the police. I don't know whether that replaced it. And I continued to see her for years after that. At one point, she was delighted that Stuart's body had been finally recovered. And delighted's not the right word. I don't know exactly what the word is. It's not exactly relieved and it's not delighted. It's not pleased. With some other emotion that I can't quite put my finger on. Triumphant, maybe? Yeah. And um, that was grand. And she went and put some flowers on the grave and she spoke to the press articulately about our pain and how awful it had been for her and um, she held a memorial service at one time I was invited to the memorial service and um, we had a really really good relationship by that time and uh, everything was going fine and then she decided that the person we'd recovered wasn't Stuart and nothing would or has convinced her since that it is Is that like a sense of hope that her son is still out there, alive? He's just, they don't know where he is. I don't know. There was no apparent change to her demeanor. Mrs. T, we still met, and she just said, well, it's not him. So earlier you mentioned that she is part of a church of spiritualism and that she has visions, and I wonder if that maybe plays into it, that maybe, you know, in one of her dreams— she saw that her son is still alive somewhere. You know, the inner negotiation, the bargaining that you have with yourself when you're trying to get over denial and really accept that something horrible happened to you. Maybe she's just not through that yet. I honestly don't know. And I can't ask her about it because that question is from my premise, not from her. I'm not sure whether it's a sad thing or not. I don't know. It's just how she feels, how she reacted. But what I am convinced of is that everybody reacts differently and there's not really a wrong or a right answer to this. And I spent some time trying to convince her that we were right, science was right, this was Stuart. And I realised, why does it matter? The laws accepted that it is Stuart. And what does it matter whether Mrs. T feels that way or not? And who am I to tell her how to feel about this? 
So she doesn't believe the DNA and all that? No. She's a remarkable woman, and I've got an enormous affection for her. And you can't impose your belief structures on what she thinks and what she believes. And she's got an extraordinary sense of right and wrong as well. You know, it was interesting with two people in the same investigation with this really powerful sense of right and wrong. And it's just a fascinating study of human nature and how we all are. I think probably if we looked into our own characters, all these manifestations of human nature, we all have them, just to a larger or lesser extent. So when you do that, it becomes, I think, not so difficult to understand why they can become magnified by trauma, magnified by grief, magnified by experience. So who am I? It's frustrating for us, but, well, I've been frustrated before. <laughs> yeah. Did Stuart have a wife and children or a family? Uh, Stuart didn't, no. He wasn't married. He didn't have a family. It was just Mrs. T advocating for him, which she did, I would say, went above and beyond, I suppose. We would all like to think we would all do it. But would we, for that long, with that determination? I don't know. She's uh, an extraordinary woman. I like Bruce's wife, who they get a little argument, and she's like, you know what? When we get back home, I'm going to let somebody know a little something about you. Yeah. I think if she'd had her time again, she wouldn't have said anything. Probably. That's that luck that you needed. Yeah, it's just luck. You know, 1% inspiration or luck and 99% uh, perspiration and just keep them grinding away and working and working and working until the luck runs out, which would probably be when we didn't find the body. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then years of more perspiration, not by me, I had to think about it and I had to set the strategy, but by the excellent people that were down there doing that work. And I suppose that's the big thing for me is that when you look at the number of people that were involved in that investigation, the number of skills, really skilled people, and lots of people who, because we were relatively small department, who we brought in, who weren't skilled detectives, you know, who can you give us? And I look at some of those young people who came into that investigation and worked with proper grizzled detectives of both sexes uh, and who brought them on and developed them under their wing and they learned their craft, their skill, their whatever you call it, as detectives there who have gone on to have long careers as investigators themselves. You know, makes me quite proud. Those are cases where you're like, I'm going to watch these old guys and see how they do this because someday... I'm going to be maybe in charge of this. I need to know. Yeah, and if you're a young beat cop pulled into that investigation because you were the first person that passed your inspector's door and said, Oi, <laughs> you, you're going up to help the CID with this nonsense that Roddy's got going. What an opportunity it was for them. And you cannot buy that kind of experience either as a senior investigating officer or as a young cop and there were, within the period of that investigation, there was so much else going on as well. There were so many offshoots to that investigation, other crimes that were uncovered, and police officers who got themselves in a bit of trouble. It just went on and on and on. You couldn't make it up. It was extraordinary. What really strikes me is all these dominoes started to fall. So Roddy gets called into your supervisor's office, and he says, hey, this woman keeps complaining I need you to take care of this. 
You make contact with her. She tells you her grievances about the police department and that her son has been missing and that the police department hasn't done anything. And within a couple days, this woman comes forward and says, I think my husband killed this man. I'm really struck by how all those things happened in such a short period of time after nothing happened previously. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It It is. is. It It really really is. is. It makes you think that there's something else going on out there. Exactly. A force bigger than us at work. Well, Mrs. T would heartily concur with your assessment. She completely believes that that is the case. You know, she had moments of real clarity. And I think what she has is extraordinarily good instincts. Once she came to me well into the investigation and she said to me, I know he was he was killed at Dunkeld, just to the north of where we are. He was definitely killed at Dunkeld. And she pulled a photograph out of her pocket. She was very fond of taking photographs of things. And this wasn't on her phone. This was like proper photograph. She pulls a photograph out of her pocket and she says, and that's got something to do with it. It was a photograph of the burnt-out car. Now, she didn't know anything about that because we didn't tell her anything about the investigation. And that burnt-out car was at Dunkeld. So that put a bit of a chill down my spine. Absolutely. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) And so she was right. I have to say, she was massively wrong about hundreds of other things, but every so often. (laughs) So there you go. I've still got a big bowl full of crystals. She gave me crystals. I've got a big bowl in my kitchen to keep me fit and healthy and on the job and protect me. And I keep them just to hedge my bets. (laughs) (laughs) Don't blame you at all. (laughs) I think it's smart. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's absolutely fascinating. We are beyond thrilled to have you on the podcast. It's been a complete joy. I really, there's nothing that old detectives like more than droning on about their old cases. And uh, (laughs) it's been an absolute delight. I've really enjoyed myself and it's been so nice to meet you all. I've never been a great one for this sort of international brotherhood of the police malarkey, you know, that folks talk about. <laughs> but but one thing I have learned over the years is that whenever I've met with detectives from other jurisdictions, other countries, they tend to focus on the difference. And I had the privilege for a wee while of going to Interpol in Lyon in France. I ended up going there quite often. And you would end up in the company of detectives from all over the world and, you know, people from the FBI and whatever, and later on when you were finished having the excruciatingly tedious meetings that they used to host, and you go out for a pint and you would sit down and have a drink and have a chat with folk, detectives are the same everywhere. The jurisdiction may be different, but how they think, the processes, how they react to criminality and investigation, there's no difference gets from South Africa, from the Lebanon, from China, from wherever, because it's all about human nature. And uh, it's a great comfort in that, I think. I love that. Absolutely. Thank you, Roddy. That was a fascinating case. Thank you. Appreciate your time, of course. I'm not sure what time it is out there in Scotland, but uh, appreciate you giving us this case that had some twists and turns I didn't anticipate. Which is saying a lot, because these guys, as you say, you all think in a sort of similar way. Well, I didn't anticipate the twists and turns either. Maybe it'd been better if I had. (laughs) (laughs) Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Logan Heftel, Gary Scott, 
and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor, The Real Nick Smitty, and Alec Cowan. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Small Town Dicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.